Howard Lindzen is the founder and general partner at Social Leverage. All opinions expressed by Howard and podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Social Leverage or StockTwits. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for decisions. Guests may maintain positions and securities discussed in this podcast. Hello, hello. Hello, my man. Monday, the end of the month. No, tomorrow's the end of the month. Yep. Not the end of the world, just the end of the month. All right. Did you have a good weekend? I did. All right. We we didn't expect to be doing more panic with friends, but my wife likes it. So the only person that matters. You got to please the wife. Got to please the wife to this week is a little more calmer because we're starting to get data. Not good data yet. We're starting to see the numbers. And, you know, as cruel as that sounds, um, we're starting to see things. I think Fox News, I saw a tweet, Fox News now has a death count. It's a long way from calling it a hoax. Uh, So, you know, it's not good data that Fox is embracing the death count of Corona or COVID, but it is a sign that uh, even the old white people are in a lather which is how you get bottoms. I mean, I'm not saying go buy stocks tomorrow. And this is, this is a show called Panic with Friends, although I was buying last week. Um, we are going to have landmines everywhere, but we've gone from half the country not even acknowledging this existed three weeks ago to panic on the white old person channel of Fox with the death count. CNN can always count, and CNBC can always count on death counts and stupid fucking data. But, uh, so their viewers have actually started paying attention to that. Well, and they're old and they're calling and they're mad and they're like blaming and, you know, they're beyond hoax at this point. Now it'll be the only, listen, I hope this is over-exaggerated, although Dr. Fauci is now saying 100 to 200. That sounds like a real number from a guy who kind of has been a calm voice. That's a big number. Yeah. He's, he's, he's saying 100, 200K, which I think Fox just finally had to say, well, man, you know, We'll go with Fauci on this. So the panic is full on and the market is rallying. So people are confused because, you know, you can't buy today. The time to buy was during the panic. Um, or wait until complete all clear signs, which could be May for some more data, which is, you know, they're talking about end of April before I can leave my home. So I'm not leaving other than to do this podcast. I'm washing and still doing this for another month. So that's why we're going to keep doing Panic with Friends. Uh, But we're not just going to talk about panic anymore because this wave of the panic is over in terms of the country now is just dealing with it in a a more professional, uh, not professional, but more like focused. The machine is kind of going. And now that the machine's going, we'll over panic because uh, the machine is a big machine. Yeah. Uh, But... The next wave of the panic, I have no idea what day it starts or when it happens or if it'll be a grinding thing, but we'll see. And so this week, I'm going to just talk more about opportunities on Panic with Friends and how smart people see uh, what could happen on the other side. Could be another 60% down. The NASDAQ in 2001 went from, or over three years, went from 5,000 to 1,000, but didn't go there in a straight line. So it dropped almost 80%. So, uh, you know, I'm not going to be the guy who says that doesn't happen again, but I don't think so. All right. So J.P. Rugzwani, good friend of mine, one of the smartest people I know, 
Uh, I rarely get a chance to talk to him. He's in London. We're going to call him late at night and talk about panic and talk about what he's seeing in London and talk about enterprise software and big data and the markets. And uh, he's just been doing this forever, kind of just retired from Deutsche Bank. Uh, So we'll get him on the horn. Uh, But first, uh, Manscaped. We're going to go with Manscaped today. Yep. Uh, One of our portfolio companies, and they wrote an ad for me. And uh, here it goes. I want you to take a second and look down. When was the last time you shaved your junk? It's been a while. Don't lie. Well, not me. I shave it all the time. Manscaped holds you accountable to get rid of the funk and not and to shave your junk. Grooming is essential nowadays. A lot of you are still hesitant to manscape. You're afraid you may cut yourself, which is understandable. That's why this revolutionary company has redesigned the electric trimmer. Their lawnmower 3.0 features a cutting-edge ceramic blade to prevent manscaping accidents so this trimmer won't nick or snag your skin. Take our advice. Go to manscaped.com. That's M-A-N-S-C-A-P-E-D.com. Try the Lawnmower 3. Use social leverage when you go to the site. Uh, our fun name, social leverage, for a 20% discount and free shipping. Say uh, Canute sent you. You may get 25% off or bounce. I don't know. <laughs> they, I've never seen Canute typed into a, a website before. All right, K-Nut, let's get JP uh, in London. It's late at night. Hi, this is JP. Hey. Hey, how are you? How are you? How, it's late at night, so thanks for taking the call. No problem. So uh, you're just outside of London, yes? Yep. And what's the uh, scene look like? Well, some, in some ways I don't know a great deal about it since I haven't left home for about two weeks. So you're two weeks in, okay. What are you but, hearing uh, in London? I've been calling my friends there, so... Tell us. Well, I have children who live there still, and uh, uh, until that two-week point, I was going regularly. I think uh, we've clamped down quite hard. There are still people at the edge who uh, aren't uh, holding discipline, but for the most part, uh, because we interact with the outside world with an airlock daily, so. Uh, our provisions come delivered and we've created our own system here about, you know, gloves on, unpack outside, throw away the packaging where there is packaging, but a lot of food now comes without packaging, which makes it a little easier. Uh, Throw the gloves away, wash hands, uh, let the, the groceries remain in the open air for the next three, four hours, and then bring it all in. Wow. And uh, sort of, you know, medication similarly, and we've probably stopped needing many other things by the time you strip stuff away about what you really need to hunker down or climb up into your hibernation. And it's just the two of you, you and your wife are in quarantine, uh, kind of uh, locked No, out. and our uh, youngest daughter, who was normally at NYU. Oh, right. Uh, you brought her home. Okay, yeah. Yeah, just uh, at a weekend before spring break. Right. Uh, I had to take a view as to where I could help her better. And uh, so she flew over here, and she'll stay here until things calm down. And 
you know, I think on both sides of the Atlantic, we're looking sort of north of the end of April before uh, anything official and more pragmatically probably north of the end of May. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I wanted to chat with you about this because, there, you know, you, you follow the markets, You're, and we'll get, get into some background quickly so people have context. Sure. So let's, let's uh, but I wanted to talk about panics, and you read so much and have a different point of yeah. view than I'm, so many. But first, let maybe give some background, start with today and you know, most recently what you were doing before today. Sure. Uh, and right now, I sit on a few boards, uh, not yet announced on a FTSE 100 company, uh, FTSE 250 company, uh, an operating bank owned by a large PE firm, uh, an investor in future energy, and uh, advice uh, in number of investors, particularly in the growth equity sector. Uh, but all this really as an independent non-executive. For the previous 20 role, 20 years, my key roles were Chief Data Officer and Group Head of Innovation at Deutsche Bank, Chief Scientist at Salesforce Worldwide, uh, the Chief Scientist at British Telecom, and the Global CIO at Dresdner Kleinwerk, which is the investment banking arm of uh, Dresdner Bank Group. So that's the 20-year potted history. <laughs> That is great. I mean, you're such so professional at summing that up, which is just like mic drop territory, which is, I'm lucky to be, to know you. I met you through, I'm trying to think where, who I met you through. You were at Salesforce maybe, or it was just, well, it, I think there were, there were, there were three groups at almost the same time. Javon. Yeah. Javon. We both invested in there. Yeah. Yep. We, we had connections through Sean. You'd already started getting some connections through. Yeah, Sean Park and, and Anthemus, who I'm going to have on the correct. podcast. Yep. And separate from that, within the sort of the Twitter stream, yes, uh, we were already sort of aware of each other because in 2000, and, I mean, I started in February 07, I think. Yep. I, I deleted my July 06 account, which should have given me bragging rights, but I, I actually failed. You know, I said, what's, what's this really going to do? And then uh, six months later, I said, you know what, this could do something. And I yeah. got myself another account. Yeah. One of my favorite quotes comes from you. There's no, and you got to, you'll tell the story. There's no such thing as information overload, just filter failure. One of my favorite quotes. Yeah. Uh, you, yeah, heard that, that's really you heard that me, the first yeah, time. Riffing off. Who was yeah, that? That was me still riffing off Clay Shirky. Clay Shirky. Who, yeah. Clay taught that to me the first time and I, I've sort of, I've mutated it in various forms and shapes, but it's absolutely been at the heart of things I think about. I'll come back to that. We'll come back we to that because that is so important risks. for yeah. people in a world of information yeah. overload. And, and, you know, there's about price data, you know, is price big data or small data, but, you know, I'm always excited to get to chat with you. So, so people, that's, that's the background is being, obviously you, we could dive in forever, but I think you're interested in so many things and I'm basically interested in one thing. Well, the one common thread is obviously data and markets we love. And obviously uh, you're, you're, a, you're a voracious reader and, but we have golf in common too. Uh, JP and I went to the British open this year, Max came along and we had a great time there despite the weather and yeah. probably the most brutal golf course I've ever seen. Oh, but it was a great tournament. I mean, all the way till 
last afternoon, you couldn't tell what was going to happen. You couldn't tell what was going to happen. Other than Carnoustie, I think those are the, and I was at Carnoustie for the British Open, I don't know, 15 years ago, 10, 12 years ago. And other than that, that's like the two hardest golf courses I've ever seen. The, yeah, well, um, it's going to be a while before we, we meet on a golf course at this rate. I, I've just been told by the USPGA because I had, you had tickets. tickets to come over to San Francisco and uh, they're going to reschedule, but whether it's a late autumn or some other time, we don't know yet. <laughs> yeah, wow. Yeah, Wimbledon's coming out today. Are they going to cancel, you think? I don't think they have a choice. Yeah, they don't have a choice. So so this show's about panics, to give it some context. So we'll yeah. end with information overload in the future. And I plan to tie the two together if okay. I get away with it. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about, I mean, you've seen panic for sure, especially back in the Dresdner days. So can you yep. kind of put into context what we just saw? Forgetting the, the, the health stuff, like I don't know if you followed the markets at all, like is there any context for what we're seeing? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, the, the frame I'd like to place on it is that there are three things happening and you need to understand all three. Okay. Right? One, uh, governments don't find it easy to manage your price risk. Okay? Mm-hmm. The, if you go back into prehistory or any form of history, you care to look at it, at least the simplified way I like to tackle these things, a government used to say, I'm going to protect you from invaders and I'm going to keep your stuff safe. Okay, mm-hmm. Those used to be the things you paid taxes to kings and empires for. Mm-hmm. And so they got good at building walls and raising armies and uh, having you know police forces. And you did the trade-off to say, yep, I'm going to pay these guys something and they're going to keep my borders safe, keep the invaders out and protect my property, protect me from crime. Okay. Those were actually pretty easy to do. When you deal with things where you can't build a wall and the police force can't respond, by the time you roll the clock forward thousands of years and come to today, Mm -hmm. uh, governments are pretty helpless at figuring out what to do. And the only answer they've got is to outsource that risk to corporations uh, through regulation. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I don't know how to manage pollution, so I'm going to make you. I don't know how to manage climate change, I'm going to make you. I don't know how to manage disease, I'm going to make you. So health and safety at work or, uh, you know, anti-EPA type regulations or whatever else, and I'm going to help you protect your assets by creating, you know, trade walls, by coming out with tariffing uh, solutions by looking at, you know, balance of trade and payments and changing the pricing formula, but there's limits to what they can do. Got it. So loosely, I say government outsourced the problem to the corporate and to the citizen. Mm-hmm. And regulation was the root. Okay. When the problems got more complicated, the regulation got more complicated as well. It still wasn't working. Right. Okay? To make matters worse, in parallel, technology had a role to play. So uh, a guy called Brian Arthur was and probably still is at Santa Fe. And I followed his works ever since he came up with the idea of uh, scale-free back in the early 90s and uh, sort of the the idea of, you know, operating uh, 
at digital scale, uh, that, that you could have zero marginal cost growth, these sort of things, and how he, you know, I think initially he used to call it increasing return models. But he wrote a book maybe a decade, 15 years ago, called uh, The Nature of Technology. Mm-hmm. And, and it wasn't about any particular technology. It was just about the concept, the very thesis of technology. And uh, he came up with this view, which fascinated me, that said, in the past, technology was something that gave us both hope as well as trust. Because what technology was doing was working with nature. And human beings didn't really understand technology, but we still really understand nature. Okay? Uh, so in the past, we could trust the things technology was doing because it was harnessing and augmenting nature. Hmm. You know, somebody saw you know, a hydroelectric dam, they sort of figured out, this works, you know. Uh, if they saw the harnessing of fire, and they said, yeah, we can handle that. And slowly we started seeing substitution technologies, but even those things seem to be augmentation rather than replacement. So interesting. Yeah. Okay. Now what's happened is that what we have faith in, nature, trust in nature, and what we have hope in, technology, are two different things because technology has sort of diverged Jump the shark. from nature. Jump correct. the shark. It's like Jurassic and, Park where you know they're going to get over the fence. Correct. So now you've got this challenge of saying, whoops, uh, I, I have to hope in something I don't really have faith in as yet. Mm-hmm. Okay. And so for the last 20 odd years, as technology has hit that curve, we've been facing that problem. So, Governments don't know what to do and they've outsourced the management of risk because the nature of the risk they're dealing with don't understand borders. You know, the coronavirus doesn't have a passport, doesn't stand in a queue, doesn't apply for a a visa or a permit and doesn't appear to be stoppable, as it were. and, And it's just a classic example to learn why governments find it tough. Okay. It's overwhelming. Then yep. you take the second thing of saying, and we, while we want to put our hope in technology, we don't yet trust technology in its modern form. Correct. Okay. And Ohm, and, and Ohm said in 2015 is when it really jumped the shark, why we hate tech now. It was like 2015 when Facebook, just when they just became so big, but keep going. Yeah, but it's, and it's you not know just about size, you know. Yeah. We, were, we were beginning to drift away from the essence of things we understood, and it would take a while. And then the third bit goes back to this sort of information overload bit, which was as we democratized access to information, and again, lots of people have written great books about the topic, and it gets a lot of research, we question expertise, okay? Because we've all got access to data. So now what happens is we've got 7.5 million people, all of whom... Know that the management of risk has been outsourced through the corporate and on to the consumer, to the individual citizen. Mm -hmm. We know that we don't have faith in the thing we have hope in, technology. And we know that we have such access to information, we question the role of the expert. Oh, God. It's a perfect storm (laughs) of chaos. 
Correct. So you end up with saying, well, who do you trust? What do you trust? Uh, you know, do I really know more than the next person? <laughs> or is it the corporate that's going to solve this for me through the regulation? Is it the state? Do I have to act? And then the same technology we don't trust, exactly as Om was probably referring to when you're speaking about how big these things have got, uh, helps polarize us. <laughs> So we don't just not trust technology or the data. We don't trust each other. At the very time, pooling of that risk and a creation of new trust values is absolutely critical. Right. Yeah. Which was a cocktail for VIX ninety, I guess. Yeah. And, and and it's and it's unreasonable for me to blame anybody. We can all look at individual decisions. We can be as critical as we want. We can take whichever side of the politics and say you were too early, you were too late, you did this, you did that. But the truth is, these are not problems that are easy for government to solve compared to the problems they used to be able to solve. Okay, The paradigm doesn't work. The truth is, we used to be able to trust and have hope in the same thing, and that divergence hurts. And the truth is, we have now question the role of expertise probably at the worst possible time yep. and then you're sort of saying okay if we do have uh, this incredibly democratized access to information uh, it's the, the, you know it's not the information overload but filter failure but that filtering starts with understanding of sources provenance, provenance. Uh, it continues with an understanding of immutability. You know, is this video real? Was this photo photoshopped, right? What's missing? Uh, has it been edited? Has that data been touched? So you want to know what you see is actually true. So where did it, you get it from? What are you seeing? And since there's so much of it, what do you concentrate on? So there is a taxonomy and ontology issue. And in the middle of all that, the very people who are important for you to be able to work with, the experts, right, have mm -hmm. been discredited at the same time as all the other institutions of trust. Correct. Right? Whether it's the state, the church, the big company, the priest, the teacher, the policeman, it doesn't matter. We don't have institutions of trust. Mm. Right? Now that, that, that's, that cocktail is dangerous. So, now, when you start talking about, you know, panic and ideas, we're having to learn in, in what is an incredible time for having to learn these things, right? Uh, you know, I saw some charts uh, only today uh, coming through and showing me that the one thing growing faster than the virus is information about the virus. <laughs> so true. <laughs> It's okay. overwhelming. I've given. I've just locked in my house, not reading, and I, that could be the wrong thing to well, do. And, and it could be the wrong. And thing And we're to all do. having to tell people there is a mental illness risk over here. Okay, mm -hmm. uh, learn to ration. You know, it's filter failure kind of thing. Do not go for a twenty-four-seven access to this information. There's no reason for it. Maybe spend ten minutes a day getting to grips with whether it's the prices for the market you're tracking or some underlying fundamentals for the sector you want to deal with or you're really interested 
in your home state, in your hometowns, number of cases for coronavirus, or you all you want to find out whether your children are well, whether you find out your parents are well, it doesn't matter what. You can't do this on a millisecond by millisecond continuum. Correct. Right? You've got to say, okay, that's as good as I can do for today. Uh, so the first thing you're going to need is to learn how to step back. I mean, that's what I'm teaching myself, okay? I mean, it's so hard for you and I to do this, but I'm loving it. So I hate to say this as death looms. I, I've never had more fun. And I say this not like, it's fun to go to the British Open. It's fun to fly to New York for dinner. I am literally enjoying my time alone with Ellen and Netflix. And, the, and you know, I, the only thing is the kids. You only have one of your kids home. So that's the, that's the hardest thing. Leaving yeah. food at and, the door and, for and my son. I can't son see my whatever. grandchildren, okay? Yeah. I can't see my grandchildren because, you know, uh, they may have very mild symptoms or as, be asymptomatic. Once I understand, you know, because okay. some facts I've been able to extract, right? Saying there seems to be general agreement on this through people on every side of the argument, mm -hmm. which is, you know, there are many more people infected than we know because of the fact that they carry very mild symptoms. Right. Okay. Uh, that's sort of absolute fact everywhere. So we can argue all the way we want about testing. And I am not an epidemiologist. I am not any form of expert of any of these things. And I don't care about, I only need to know whatever I can extract to look after my family. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I'm, I'm almost being forced to say, I need to learn how to interpret the state, the corporate, the next door neighbor, uh, the experts around the world, this information overload and say, which things can I come out with? Right? So saying, okay, it seems to be pretty unarguable that this is not an aerosol. It's based on droplets. Okay. The second element is, the most dangerous transmission period appears to be the 15 hours before you exhibit symptoms. <laughs> before. <laughs> okay. The third element says, well, you know, and I can go on and on. And as I said, I do not want to show myself to be an expert or anything else. These are rules of thumb. No, you're just to learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And in that learning, how you find who to trust, how you, you know, the, the journalist used to say, it's not just source provenance, but corroboration, okay? And the heart of scientific theory is about being able to test a model. And the idea of peer review is very much based on saying, can we get other people who can independently come to the same conclusion, okay? Yep. So the same has to apply with any other set of data before it can become a fact, okay? And on one, and you know, you guys, you know, you know that I'm not an investment professional, but people in in as investment professionals know more about biases and the psychology in investing than anybody else. Mm -hmm. Okay, they understand human biases, and we see so much of that now in operation because those biases are not 21st century. The biases are sort of expositions of how close we remain to nature, right? They're, they're in our psyche. They're deep within us. And they, our survival instincts rely on those things. 
Okay, not necessarily always for good. <laughs> you know, they, they, you know, the loss aversion kind of thing is a bias. Yeah. Right. And but it's based on anyway. It's based uh, on. Uh, it's just based on human. Yeah, and what we're calling human nature is itself the statement about we are still closer to nature than we are to technology, and this divergence is a reason for panic in itself. <laughs> so looking beyond the panic, because it's hard to, I mean, you're not going to get rid of tech and these divergences. Is there anything that we can count on continuing? Like, I, it was amazing that the volatility was so low for so long considering the tail risk that this well, divergence was going to bring. So now that we have yeah. the divergence showing itself, and I believe I kind of love the explanation that you're giving because it's unique and on point and common sense. Uh, do we, are we going to be living in a higher volatility world? It makes sense to me that like, how do you get, it'll take decades to get volatility down when you have this divergence. I, I, I probably, I'm, you know, uh, I'm, I'm more optimistic about some things and, a little more feet on the ground and a few others. Uh, I like the framing that uh, this is closer to a demand shock than it is to a structural failure in the you know in the system. So mm. this is where people who know about investment say you know eighty nine was this or eighty seven was this and ninety seven ninety eight was this and two thousand was this and two thousand eight was this and uh, a demand shock is closer to say 2001, uh, sort of September. Okay. Okay. And uh, the the market's sort of resilience acts differently when it's not a structural failure. Hmm. Okay, that's one piece. But every time there is change, and we are living in a period of you know in in crisis, you sort of see some changes that have been waiting to happen, accelerate. Correct. We're seeing you know? that. Yeah. And, Those are obvious other, because people correct. talk about them, Zoom or Teladoc, tele, telehealth. And, and, and other things will uh, sort of degrade as quickly. Okay. So, you know, we have to ask ourselves, you know, when someone tells me, hey, we're not going to be shaking hands anymore. Okay. And, you know, you've seen the stories of saying, well, in Japan, they never shook hands or in India, they never shook hands. But if you actually look at the culture of shaking hands, uh, you shook hands with your enemy to check whether there were any hidden knives or weapons up their sleeve. Yeah. Canute, yeah. <laughs> right? For sure with Canute, I yeah. do that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> right. So it, it was never intended to be, uh, you know, and I trust you. This was much more, I'm going to count my fingers and yours and check. I didn't know that. Right? That's so interesting. Yeah, makes sense. So so I suspect that things that involved human touch, you know, and again, as I said, I'm not the investment guy, but we are seeing changes in that contactless has really started accelerating, remote has really started accelerating. And like with any other pendulum, it will go extreme before it comes back to a new normal, but in that new normal, uh, you know, you and I are going to get frequent flyer Zoom cards. Right. right. You know, are you going to be the first million Zoom hour 
uh, card holder. That's a good point. Because there's going to have so much competition, so they're going to have to entice people to, to stay on Zoom. It'll be frequent flyer. And, yeah. and remember that, you know, even a change like that, you know, I'm fascinated with this idea of something called the Overton window. Are you familiar with that? No, of course not. I have, I have no right. life. So tell me the Overton right. window. Well, they, it appears to be from an, you know, an American professor in the mid-1990s talking about a sliding window during which it is possible to make a, a socio-cultural change. You know, there was a time in human life you could ban cigarettes or you could uh, put through Roe versus Wade or you could switch to electric hmm. cars or... You know, going stop smoking on planes type thing, yeah. Yeah, and and those windows are short. And because we spoke earlier about government not having this, the same weaponry, it needs to use regulation to be like a second-order manager of risk. Right? Uh, the reality then becomes that even their ability to act to put that regulation through has windows. And these windows close and reopen later. So when we talk about which changes persist, yeah. right? there's nothing that's striking out at me to say, uh, you know, there was something wrong with business or something wrong with trade or something wrong with human life in its essential form, okay? Mm -hmm. But there are two or three things that hang about that, you know, are probably longer term more troubling well, one would, of my friends would one of the uh, longer term said, go know, ahead when your yeah, friend said no, about troubling. well i was saying like troubling means like commercial like unintended consequences cities were booming and now people may think about spacing meaning i used to go up an elevator and not worry now you know if i'm running a building i got to put in contactless elevator buttons and i've got to have a guy hey, at every building taking temperatures and you, those are things that are just going to happen You've been to Israel and used a Shabbat elevator? Yeah. I mean, those they, right. they look smart now, those people, except it's yeah. going to be seven days a week, not one day a week. Correct. But, they, but you know, uh, and it's not just contactless, but now we've got the other choice, right? You take the Shabbat elevator and you marry it with Siri. Mm -hmm. Okay? So you walk in and you say seven. <laughs> it's got to happen. Like, there's no way New York doesn't have this. And, and so this is a hidden cost that's just going to hit at the wrong time for a lot of people. Yeah. So, you know, the, the movement on, you know, the, I think that the challenge is because I can speak glibly about saying government, this technology, that data, this, but when you have, uh, you know, I, I think the figure I was quoted was that 20 million people a year die of poverty. Okay. Seems low. Well, yeah, no, just out of poverty alone. Still seems low. Okay. Not die in poverty. Okay. Oh, okay. Where it. the root cause is they don't have anything. Right. And then you start sort of thinking, you know, we've had all these 1% kind of attempts. But uh, what comes out a bit like you were talking about, well, the shift to the city that has been spoken of with, you know, half of humanity living in cities may now be rethought. Yeah. Because it was right. gaining momentum, you know, you had the suburbs, Correct. then the city was coming back in favor, and then they're talking about smart cities, and now cities look dumb. Even as smart as air, it feels dumb if you live in a city. Yeah. And, and, you know, very high concentration or density. 
yeah. uh, will start being questioned in some form or shape. But we're not going to get away with the convenience of some elements of that, okay? I can look at it from a different angle and say, I'm sh- sure Singapore and Hong Kong are two of the densest cities going. Right? Vertical mm-hmm. living. Mm-hmm. They, they didn't do too badly yeah, in point. managing the... Okay? So it's not the density alone. It's lots of cultural aspects to it. So we may reinvent city density. That's why I said we're going to watch oh, that pendulum. Got it. But no, but but my instinct, meaning big and, cities may copy Singapore a little bit more after this. Yeah, and you know uh, what does cross border freedom look like? Uh, when would you and I decide it's right to fly? Because mm-hmm. remember, we've got another sort of you know triple header out there. Right, we've got the learnings from the virus at the same time as we've got the climate change issues to get get over. At the same time as we've got the uh, populism kind of tensions, because uh, all three are active and visible. Okay, mm-hmm. you put those things together, and I could turn around and say, well, if everyone moved away from the city, transport costs are going to be quite interesting. <laughs> yeah. Right. And uh, if the state's going to solve it, right? Well, states haven't been too good at dealing with public transport. Uh, so, you know, one of the threats that was stated in this, you know, tension of no longer relying on expertise is that states either become chaotic or authoritarian. <laughs> okay? So we've got authoritarian risk as well. Right. 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 I don't even, we don't even know which is worth chaos or authoritarian. I, I guess I would, neither is, those are two terrible choices. Yeah. And, you know, I go back to, you know, even childhood times and being told, you know, democracy is appalling until you consider the alternatives. Right. Yeah. So, uh, you know, nobody said it was going to be easy, but uh, the reason why I said, you know, I'm, I'm optimistic yet pragmatic is, uh, humanity has managed to get over some, you know, pretty difficult environments in the past. But it's because we've learned to do something like trust each other and work with each other. Right? Mm-hmm. Uh, many of the conversations that are coming through, right, I'm seeing at the grassroots level, when people can't get their groceries, uh, there is already an informal network of trade-offs. Hey, I've got a booking open. What are you missing that I can order for you? Okay? Mm-hmm. Oh, I'm over 70. I've, I've got uh, priority access to the supermarket tomorrow morning. What can I get you while I'm there? Right? I'm having to go to the pharmacy to pick up essential meds. Is there something I can get for you? Right? Uh, the volunteers, when the NHS call for volunteers in this country, and I can only speak about the UK, over three quarters of a million people <laughs> signed up wow. right, to help get food to the isolating elderly who are have sort of vulnerable immune systems or are otherwise you know, infirm in some form. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, these sort of things, you know, different states with what, how, what they will do to protect against, uh, you know, financial pain. Right? The, you know, the mental illness side is not to be underestimated. Uh, a mix of isolation, uh, financial sort of stress, and not being in your normal environment can, can create all kinds of sort of 
you know, cocktails again, but of emotion. Yeah. But yeah. if I step back from it and say, we are all seeing, you know, you can reel them off as much as I can, and the people listening to this should be able to do the same thing, that there's a lot that we are learning at grassroots level about trusted commitment and collaboration in community. Okay? Yep. That's, that is a risk mitigant, because to me, uh, uh, if you remember when we were together in Sydney, and we were speaking at AMI or whatever, what, a decade ago? Yeah, eight, eight uh, years maybe. Uh, yeah. When we were there, trying to explain to people the heart of insurance is mutualization. Okay? When you lived in a village and your barn burnt down, your neighbors helped you rebuild the barn while they were rebuilding it and helping you rebuild it. Your family got housed. They were fed and watered because the tail event, as it were, was covered by the premium that you paid into the community. Correct. Okay. Mutualization is at the heart of almost any insurance model. It's not an evenly spread risk. The whole idea was to say, well, is there a smarter way for us to deal with this? Okay. Well, we're going to find that community spirit again. And... I can't believe that that community spirit uh, died, okay? We may have lost some connectivity with it. But under stress, human beings tend to congregate in that form, so I will watch for that, mm -hmm. right? The second element is if we see that localized trust rebuild in small networks, right? What we're doing is we're saying we're moving away from hit culture to long tail. Moving away from what culture? Happening. Moving away from what culture? Hit culture. Hate culture. Okay. I agree. There's Hate. a pivot. There's that's one trend that may start reversing here. Smaller groups, Correct. more community. Yeah, and, and I see it and on stock twits. Like it's just everybody's in love with each other all of a sudden. When it was a bull market, everybody knew everything, <laughs> and now that it's a panic, people appreciate stock twits because and, and, because and you know what? The friendships that form under that stress. Oh, unbelievable! Right, those friendships will last forever. Yeah, really okay. good point. Yeah, mm -hmm. so there are strong strands that are being built in an emergent community. The second element is saying, I, no one can explain to me why the demand won't return, except for things that were destined to die. Okay? So I'm not going to see Blockbuster come out with sort of videotape tomorrow. Right? I'm not going to see horses being shod the day after. Yeah, so demand will return for everything that wasn't meant to die. I like that. Correct. So a few things would have been accelerated to die. A few other things would see constrained demand compared to the past, you know. Uh, but generally, everywhere, if we talk, we, we can't in the same moment talk about scarcity and uh, a lack and having to queue up for things and a run on various kinds of commodities without saying, and there's pent-up demand, and that will be looked at. Right? You don't think people are going to go to restaurants when they reopen? But are we going to learn something about social distancing while we do that? I hate the term because I say that's physical distancing, but we're closer in social terms. Yeah. No, you're right. Like right? The habit won't change. The way we do it will change. And the, and yeah, the, but, but that means you know, rather than dog-eat-dog -dog competition, a cutthroat competition because competitive intensity is very high, uh, we're going to see people say, you know what, I used to have 100 covers in my restaurant. 
in the new form structure, there's going to be 60. Mm-hmm. And I've got to build my business model to cope with 60, right? Yeah. Uh, am I going to see my input prices keep low so that I can hold my price line? Or am I going to have to vary something to do with my price? Or am I putting enough value in it? Because I go to restaurants where I can hear people speak. Okay? I don't like overcrowded restaurants even before this happened. Uh, I like a little distance between me and the next table so that we can have a conversation without raising our voices and we don't hear everybody else, neither does everyone else hear us. Okay? The booths of these wonderful 1920s restaurants I used to go to in New York. Yep. Right? They were also built for this idea of a little bit of seclusion and you're not sitting in everybody else's space. <laughs> so true. So yeah. we're going to see something that says, you know, the movie hall is not going to be a sardine can. The airplane's not going to be a sardine can. We're never going to have to look for the guy. So in truth, the airplanes may have to reimagine flight because they were cramming seats in. People will Correct. rebel. So will what rebel. does yield management look look like yeah. for a plane or for a restaurant? Ooh, I like that. Right? What does public transport look like as you reimagine some of these things? Right? We're not throwing them away. We're just saying, well, there's something to learn about it. Mm-hmm. Okay? So, you know, my expectation is saying uh, the things that die uh, in terms, I mean, you know, I will feel a pain about every person that dies because I think human life is sacred. Mm-hmm. Uh, but when some habits die or some uh, products disappear or some companies pass away, these things were meant to happen. You know, there is a, an evolutionary aspect to that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, that's... Um, but, Go ahead, but does that make sense to you? Sort of saying it makes sense. Know? I mean, that's what I wanted to get into. We didn't have to talk about markets because there's so much to. De- you have to take a step back right now. We're forced to take a step back, so try and make the best of the step back. I think you know from the demand shock discussion to what does yield management look like to you know some people obviously got hit by lightning here. You know they weren't doing it for the wrong reasons, but the world is going to change. And, and and demand generally for everything that wasn't meant to die. Or yeah, for the, but, I, but I think something else will happen, which is that, you know, I've been looking for the last few years, particularly over the last year, into ESG, okay? Mm-hmm. Sort of, you know, investor signals for extractable from ESG, et cetera. And the more I've looked at it, the more I've said, uh, what we call ESG, and I'm not a fan of the term, is actually risk metrics for the risks that government outsourced to corporate. And so what do you think there? Well, I, I land up saying you are, you know, after coronavirus, you're going to be looking a lot more carefully at supply chains. Got it. Okay? You're going to be looking a lot more at distribution. All right? uh, these things that were assumed to be either irrelevant or frictionless suddenly carry a different weight when you're trying to price risk, okay? Uh, because while I'm bullish about, say, COVID-19 right, uh, is something that we're going to get to a peak of, we're going to see the decline, we're going to see some understanding of antidotes on the way there, whether it's uh, remdesivir or whatever, we're going to get to understanding whether antibodies are being secreted by those who recover. 
We're going to get some vaccines out there. But the virus will continue to change. There will be other viruses. Like we never solve flu, and each year we're dealing with new strains. For the coronavirus said, there's nothing in me that says I know something that says it's never going to happen again. Right? Which is why some of these changes will become permanent. And the, But the permanent will be not in this staccato authoritarian fashion. Uh, humanity will adjust to how we work these things out. Yeah, but if the yeah, but if the demand is going to come back for many things, if people still have a heart of wanting to go work and be productive, if the love of education and the want to get there is still there, if people are still going to want to go to a gym to be well and need the the help of the health service, if there's still people who, uh, you know, are affected by the way the economy and society runs and they need help the the welfare state still has its role to play and we may all be that little bit more connected to each other when we come out of this uh, to start being more humane and more understanding about the calls we make yeah but on the path there i do expect that we will suddenly look at things like supply chain with a different eye we will price those things into investment decisions in a much more structured way. Yeah. Boy, I'd hate right. to be young, though. Like, think about us. We've put in the miles. We have the network. We did the FaceTime. It is going to be so different for a brand starting out today that relies on contact face-to-face. -face. Like, building a network today post-COVID is going to be the biggest fundamental change for my son. Like, I see the stress. Like, they just don't know. They're used to hugging it out. And even though they were on their phones, uh, that was the phones kind of screwed up their a lot of the contact that they did. But now they don't even have that, so it's really messing with the young kids who are used to at least be able to see each other, even if they weren't talking to each other. So, I mean, I'm grateful yeah, but that, that I had. My I, suspicion is that some of the you know some of the early Pew research, you know, uh, going back uh, a decade or so said that the super communicators uh, did not, you know, have a second life in order to avoid a first life. They were actually great communicators in real life. They were just also very good at using technology or separation. In fact, their culture used to share things even like phones that you and I wouldn't know how to do. Yeah, good point. Okay. Yeah. So my, 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 my suspicion there is that you know, this is something that Sean taught me, you know, going back to early years at Dresner, that the the rollout of digital infrastructure that people like John Hagel and John C.D. Brown uh, describe as the big shift, the switch from knowledge stocks to learning, knowledge flows and learning becoming the key engine, that's going to manifest itself in a drive where you could be cost leader, and go global, absolutely standardized vanilla, or you could be service leader, and you would be boutique selling to you know your local town and knows where you grew up, knows your mom and dad's names, knows where you went to school and everything. Okay, mm -hmm. these two extremes of high service leadership and uh, the low cost leadership uh, are extremes. Yeah, and in the middle 
are national industries that are going to find it very hard. Correct. Because they're only... And so when we see this change, there are going to be places where, you know, you're going to say, you know what, JP, I'm going to buy my food from my local store. And I want to know that, you know, when I come to New York to see my daughter, right, and I go to Union Square Market on a Saturday morning, I know that the social policing that is done there means that nothing comes there in a stall that hasn't been grown in something like a 30-mile radius. Right. Okay? So some of these things to say, I will care about the source, not just about the information, but about the food I have, about the car I buy, about the, uh, the, the book I read or whatever, mm-hmm. right? Uh, these things... It's one thing to say you're going to care about it. It's another to say that the information base for you to be able to discover that those things, the labeling to say, I know where this came from and I know what transport cost it's had. I know what will happen if, you know, the 50 states decide they're going to increase tariffs between each other. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Because you, you're, going to, you're going to have to start unbundling your understanding of the firm to really understand, you know, uh, how far something has to move and how often it crosses boundaries where friction can be added, right? What happens if people start going into city-state kind of models for the localization of risk management? What <laughs> happens if people yeah. de- decide to travel less, right? Well, that's not, it's, just, it's a thing. Costs are just going to go up. So demand... You know, the way I would say it, and we'll check in in a month or so because I appreciate your time, is demand should come back. It feels like a demand shock. Obviously, there's going to be unintended consequences. And it does feel like government has a great chance to reach here as they, as they print money and that uh, costs, for unfortunately, for the people who can't afford it, is going to go up. And then the wealthy may create the supply problem because they just will do less because they can afford to do less kind of scary yeah. so you know i'm, and, I'm and optimist like you but pragmatic and i'm trying to think through all these things yeah. you know. and, and and we all have to keep our humanity with us because those of us who are privileged not to feel all the pain as intensely uh it's whether we have enough of a sense of community to change some of our own behaviors to deal with the people who have less but if you're going we're going to spend seven eight twelve weeks uh in community level isolation we're going to learn things and we're going to build bonds both physically as well as virtually mm-hmm. which are going to be the the sinews and the strength of the new emergence yeah maybe it was like i said it's just i feel luckier to be older and have done all my travel and kind of love my neighborhoods and know my neighborhoods i was never an explorer i was kind of a creature of habit and that's paying dividends right now because i know my locals so i think yeah the humanity uh, I'm just grateful. So, uh, but I think your, your, your points are well taken. Hopefully we can call you in a month or so when, when we have a little more data. Sure. Okay. And, and it's please good to talk to you. It feels great look to, after to yourself. talk to you. I'll look after myself. Thanks for taking the time, buddy. Hey, stay well. Okay. Stay well. Cheers. Mind blower, huh? You wouldn't know. I didn't I'm, give you a no, background. I didn't give you the I'm background. Speechless. It's just another schmo that Howard knows. Yeah. That's what they should call the show, Schmo with Howie. Howard Schmoes. Uh, I, I get to spend maybe once a year with him, 
And it took Max to golf. Like, you know, Max was even, Max was like, looked at me, he goes, he's only, he's only thought two people were smart in my friend's group. Well, three, Brian Norgar, mainly because of Tinder. But uh, when he met Fred Wilson, he goes, oh, his eyes look really smart because they look tired. <laughs> and then when he hung out with JP at the British Open, he just would go on long walks with them. And I was like, I didn't think Max would, but JP has the ability to talk to everybody. So hopefully you, en- you enjoyed that one. Oh, absolutely. I'm, um, I'm amazed at his ability to see the whole picture. Well, and you know, in his That was view, his job. Still, yeah. Like he, for Mark Benioff, that was his job. Right. Is to just, I need to call you and see the big picture. Mm-hmm. You know, he would sit in his room in UK and Mark Benioff, and he was like chief scientist for Mark, I don't even know what that title meant. Now you know what it means. When, <laughs> when you just want to have someone you can talk to mm-hmm. about the bigger things. Yep. And that's all he thinks about. That was his kind of his life. All right. So we got to have him back one day. Definitely. It'd be great if he just lived here and was on, on the show every day. All right. We'll be back with another panic with friends soon. Everybody hope you enjoyed.